That's the admission of a converted soul, isn't it? Amen. Can you can you truly be a child of God without him being ruler of your soul? The high king of heaven. A tremendous text, a great reminder that when we open God's word, that needs to be front and center of our minds and hearts. That we are not hearing, as it were, from the word of men, but as indeed it is the word of God, which effectually works in those who, who believe. So, uh, praise the Lord. So we have installed uh, uh, phone chargers in each one of the uh, four rows of the front four sections. So if anyone just wants to fill in those spaces in the future, you've got a little... Got a little incentive for that. No one got up and moved. Everyone up front's looking for him. It's like, where are they? <laughs> I got a little funny text sent me sent, sent to me yesterday that made me laugh, and that was it. So I thought I'd say it, even though it's not true, because the rest of the message should certainly be about truth. Uh, so we'll focus there. Really looking forward to our times of fellowship this afternoon and this evening. Folks, we need those. I really hope as you've gotten your information about your gathering, whether it be over lunch or mid-afternoon or this evening, that you do intentionally uh, attend and be prepared to be an encouragement to those who come. Uh, we desperately need those times to be with each other more and more. And especially with... A world that is getting noisier, and if you thought the decibel level of worldly noise was too loud now, I don't think we've heard anything yet. So be together as you see your appointment of Christ being face to face with Him imminently upon us. So much the more we need to be around the body. So I hope you've carved out time to do that today according to as your fellowship group is doing so. And even more intimately than that is making sure that if you're discipling someone or being discipled, that you passionately hold on to those times, whether you're meeting once a week or once a month or once a quarter, that you hold on to those times of walking each other through life together in Christ. The world is constantly going to be trying to pull those relationships apart personally and then in a fellowship and in corporate worship all those intentional times we gather together lord the world's just mm, going to keep pulling and pulling and that's all the more we need to strive to be together to enjoy those times together mr and mrs weaver it's great to see you this is your first sunday back for quite a while isn't it you look wonderful i hope i get a chance to give you a hug before you scoot out of here i'm going to come find you somehow been praying a lot for you. It's good to see you. So many others here that may be back. I don't know that I see you yet, but if I see you, I may stop in the middle of a sentence in my sermon to welcome you back too. So many that want to be here that can't, uh, welcome to you on live stream. Uh, we're going to get back into 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look specifically this morning at verses 7 through 12. Um, but we're going to come full circle back to those verses after we begin at a, hopefully a wise overview of the whole section that we described continues through chapter 12 and verse 13. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a book called Lectures to My Students. He had a preacher's school. It's a great book, by the way, a great volume, if you've ever able to obtain it. Again, simply titled Lectures to My Students. It's great wisdom, not just for men studying for ministry, but for saints studying for discipleship. He says this in that volume, cautious hesitancy is in nine cases out of 10, cowardly betrayal. The best policy is never to be diplomatic, but to proclaim every atom of the truth of God's word so far as God has taught it to you. I'll state that again. Cautious hesitancy is in nine cases out of ten cowardly betrayal. The best policy is never to be diplomatic, but to proclaim every atom of the truth so far as God has taught it to you. When it comes to protecting the Corinthian church with humility and transparency, Paul clearly outlines every atom of truth so far as God had taught it to him and to them. He knows there's been great strides made in this church's return to fellowship with Christ. And as a concerned parent would be for a child coming out of rehab for for an addiction issue, Paul pours his heart and soul into their further protection to avoid any sort of spiritual relapse. This is simply what the people of God do when protecting each other from the perils and influence of falsehood. We join together with the heart of Paul to protect each other from the same. We know from our study in 2 Corinthians that there was a small group within it, even a larger religious group, a philosophical group from without the church of Corinth that sought to dissuade her from the message of the sufficiency of Christ and Him crucified. And Paul asks us to join him in protecting each other from the messaging and the influences of those who would seek to pull us away from the sufficiency who is Jesus Christ. By the way, Paul calls the people who hold fast to the strength of God in Christ weak. And he does so as he labels himself weak numerous times throughout this chapter. We noted Paul identifying himself among the weak in verse 30, where he said, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Remember in chapter 12 and verse 5 last week, we noted where Paul said, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. Verse 9 of chapter 12, he says, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He quotes Christ, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, where the Lord Jesus directly addresses Paul when Paul asks him several times to remove this thorn in the flesh. And he quotes the Lord Jesus' response to Paul's request to have this thorn in the flesh removed, where Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You see, friends, if we're going to remain genuine protectors of the church, 
we must understand that Christ and Christ alone is enough. Both to be identified with Him, with His body, and then grown according to the Word of God into His likeness. He is the only reason we think, talk, act, and live in a different way, in a countercultural way than the world does, and specifically here, than those who are merely religious or philosophical. In our personhood, apart from Christ, we are powerless to live godly lifestyles. Without Christ, we are weak. In Him, we have our all in all. So it's no wonder when Paul says he's willing to boast about his weakness. He's bragging about his own inability to faithfully live for Christ apart from Christ. What God the Spirit has done by transforming us from spiritual death to spiritual life in Him is the demonstration of the Spirit and power of God. We live in a day when a lot of people are putting their own stamp on Christianity. If Paul were to create his own stamp... He could place on an addressed envelope in the return address section, I am weak. And the next line would say, He is strong. Every time that stamp would be seen, it would remind everyone that Paul's life, our life in Christ, was only possible by the strength of God. Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, once said, It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you do know for sure that ain't so. Well, this Paul knew for sure. Only God's grace was sufficient for him to live the life that Christ had given him to live. Finding the ability to live godly in life and ministry cannot be found in our fallen selves. We know that Paul's allegiance is to the sufficiency of Christ and not himself. So falsehood must want to lead the people of God in the opposite direction. Paul describes the false ones throughout the remainder of this letter, in particular the section that we're studying now that ends in chapter 12 and verse 13. Look with me at chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, and let's see how he particularly describes these false ones who are both religious and philosophical. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. If you go down to chapter 11 and verse 20 and verse 21, Paul says to the Corinthians, For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you. This is what false ones do. They enslave you. Anyone devours you. 
anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone that hits you in the face, to my shame I must say, that we have been weak by comparison. In other words, if that's how you're going to define weakness is by being dominant, then yeah, we're weak. But he's saying your true weakness is really soul, strength in Christ. Chapter 12 and verse 10. We'll see how they're described by Paul again. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, my own insufficiency, my exclusive strength in Christ. I'm okay with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Those who are false or influenced by falsehood rarely, if ever, will talk exclusively. Are you with me? I'm going to restate this because I think it's pretty necessary. Those who are false or influenced by falsehood, not false, but influenced by it, struggle, if ever, to exclusively see the beauty of Christ alone in the life of another believer. They will struggle to speak of what they see the Spirit of God doing in that believer who loves Christ. Those who are false or who are influenced by falsehood struggle with assuming faith, assuming growth in Christ's likeness, and then addressing humanity. Those who are false or who struggle with falsehood will first seek to find the fallen part of our humanness, dominate and struggle with that, rather than first finding the beauty of Christ and the assumption that grace is growing us into the likeness of that beauty. So if we're going to protect the flock, we're going to be counted among being weak, And since we are weak and he is strong, that when we shepherd each other, we must find his strength in each other first. For all that we are is Christ and all that we have is Christ. Christ, only Christ. Be honored, loved, and exalted. This is why it's so emphatically important that when we love and care for each other that we discipline our minds and our hearts to see what Christ has done in each other's lives. You know, it's so important to do this even when you sit down with another believer and they feel like they've had the worst spiritual week or month of their lives. As a matter of fact, it's most important to do it at that moment. For the only way to find our way back to assurance that I am His and He is mine is to discuss the nature of the beauty of Christ 
in us, who is the hope of glory that was granted to us by God in his grace the moment we were born again. We have never stopped being less of a child of God when we have a bad month in the Lord. A bad day in the Lord. A bad week in the Lord. A bad year in the Lord. We've never stopped being completely a child of God. As a matter of fact, when we struggle, He never does. God doesn't struggle with our sonship, our daughtership in Christ like we do. Once we're adopted, that's done. He just seeks to love and to grow. And when Jesus is strong, then yes, we're weak. And that's okay. When we labor and study together, when we labor in prayer together, when we live life together, highlight the strength of Christ in each other. Note those things that are only things that God can do in someone, in you, and through you. And worship Him together when you're testifying of those sacred things that Christ is and what He does in us and through us. You may have the word weak stamped by your name, but in the sight of our holy God, you're strong in Christ. That's where our boast is. That's where our brag is. It's in our weakness. For when we boast in our weakness, then others will know whatever we are that is good, it's God. It's Christ. Boasting is a big deal in this section that runs through chapter 12 and verse 13. There's a lot of boasting going on throughout the whole section. Both kinds of boasting are exclusive in nature. As you read through the passage, you'll notice the form of the word some 13 times. Boasting is a part of the lives of both belief and unbelief. Belief in personal weakness and unbelief in its own personal ability. It's truly not difficult to see the difference. So Paul says, you're going to call me foolish. Another popular word in this portion of the text through chapter 12 and verse 13. You're going to call me foolish because I'm counting myself among the weak. If that's weakness, then that's foolishness and I'm a fool. It doesn't take a true believer long at all to count themselves weak and only strong in Christ if they're truly born again and they're continuing to walk with God. That's true humility. So that's somewhat of an overview of this next major section. It's peppered with these peculiar words like weakness, boasting, and foolishness. And I just thought it would be good to highlight that as we move back now to our next section in verses 7 to 15. Uh, Really, verses... 13, 14, and 15 are somewhat of a conclusion as Paul describes unbelief, which we've already read. So our attention will be drawn to three particular things now in verses 7 to 12 as we conclude. 
Before we read verses 7 to 12, I want you to notice the use of a word in verse 9, and then the use of the same word in chapter 12 and verse 13, because this word really bookends this major section of the third part of this letter. He says in verse 9, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the Macedonian brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need and everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Now if you go over to the last verse of this section, in verse 13 of chapter 12, he says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me if this is wrong. Whatever's going on here, it's clear that if someone's going to be a protector of the church, they don't want to be a burden on the church. And there's three particular ways that the Apostle Paul decided by the Holy Spirit that he was not going to be burdensome to the church of Corinth. And we can decide among ourselves not to be burdensome to the church in Mentor, our assembly, in the same way. There are three words in this next section that identify us what it means to protect the flock and not be a burden. The first one is found right in verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Underline that word humbling. It's right there in our text. If we're going to protect the church, if we're not going to be a burden to the church, we must all take a modest approach to ministry to one another. A modest approach. That's the synonym I'll use for this word humbling. Paul wasn't a burden to Corinth. He never had been a burden to Corinth because he took a humble, modest approach to his ministry. So he asks a question here. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Paul's asking somewhat of a rhetorical question here. Is he sinning by letting what Christ is wonderfully doing in the Corinthians' walk and newfound fellowship with Christ be the focal point? Is he he failing? Because he was proclaiming his own weakness and the exclusive strength of Christ. Obviously, the answer would be, of course not. He's not sinning. When he wants what Christ is doing in their lives to be exalted instead of himself be the center of attention. He qualifies by continuing the question, because I preach the gospel to you without charge. Paul is asking a question that profound weakness, profound foolishness asks. Did I come to you asking for money when I gave you the gospel for the first time? You see, that's one of the things falsehood does in this culture of the first century. It's focused on making money 
off the people of God exclusively based on their personal skill set. That was really part of the culture among some philosophers. By the way, Aristotle was one of those Greek philosophers that never charged to be heard. All of his information, all of his rhetoric was free, but it was common in that day, both for philosophers and many, not all false teachers, to charge money to be heard. You would have to pay to hear them speak. Based on their ratings in the culture, they would set a price of their own value. They would charge people up front. So I guess if they existed today, there would be a website where you could go buy tickets just to hear the polished oration and rhetoric of certain philosophers and teachers of the law. They made no qualifications about this at all. This is just what they did. From my simple research on the subject, there were always some trying to get into the speaking industry, if you will, of the day. In their early days, they would gather a small crowd around them and maybe leave a container of some sort out for people to make donations if they thought there was any value to what they were saying. Maybe in a street performer kind of way. They would try to live off the donations of the listeners. But there were the seasoned professionals, the five-star philosophers or religious ones that could demand money up front because people knew they were going to have their ears tickled and their minds blown by what was to be heard. As a matter of fact, hang on to this from my study regarding this cultural aspect of the Corinthian community. If you didn't ask for money up front in this culture as a speaker, you were considered weak and quite uninfluential. Also, we need to know that if you didn't ask for a fee, then you really didn't love your listener either. Because if you really thought what you were saying was important and you really felt that it was worth money for people to pay to hear, then that means that your listener was hearing something that was going to be of great value to them. And if it was of great value to them, that was the definition of how a speaker would love his audience, giving them something of value. I love you. Now come hear me, pay, and you'll hear what's good for you. powerful stuff. It's simple research. There's other layers that are going into understanding this historic culture of public speaking. We don't have time to go into all those, but Paul is simply saying here, I didn't ask you for money when I first came because I didn't have myself to proclaim to you. Remember 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. When he's explaining his entrance to them, which he had in Acts 18, you can go back and read that in your own time, when he first came to Corinth. He said, I came to you not speaking myself or the the rhetoric of man's wisdom. I came to you speaking Jesus Christ and him crucified only. So I myself, in my weakness, I have nothing to proclaim to you. I cannot help you. But Jesus can and he will omnipotently do so. 
when you understand him and own him as Lord and Savior. He's saying this is what the weak do. Like John the Baptist, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. As a matter of fact, it goes on in verse 8. Let's look at verse 8. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Oh my goodness. This really has to be understood. Because the word rob literally means rob. So this is how the Corinthians would have understood this when they had it spoken to them or when they read this letter. The word rob literally means, it's a military term. It means to pillage or to plunder. It's like, it's like if you were in hand-to-hand combat and you were to slay another soldier, upon that soldier's death, you would disrobe him, you would take his armor, his weapons, anything of value on him that could be good for you, you would take it for your own good. That's exactly what the word means. Why in the world would Paul use this particular word at this time? And then he goes on to say in verse 9, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to you. Paul's just really expressing what was the hardest thing to do. It was hard to make a living this way. Not asking for money. It was hard to gain the support the way he did from free will offerings of those who love Christ and the gospel. But that's what he did. That's what he did. He goes on to explain in verse 9, For when the brethren came from Macedonia, then fully supplied my need and everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. Again, in Acts 18, you can go back to this passage to see how Paul first entered Corinth and ministered to them. This passage teaches how Paul was a leather worker. He had a side small business. He would sell leather for people to make their own tents for their own purposes. Tents were used for every purpose in that culture. It was a main source of shelter for other small businesses and for even for some homes for people who were more poor. That was Paul's custom. He never went into cities where he was first taking the gospel and asked for money. He just preached Christ and worked on the side to make his living so he could continue to preach Christ. As a matter of fact, if you study the New Testament, Paul's income came from established churches. And each one of those established churches, when he first went and spoke to them, he did not ask for funds from them. It was only as they grew in Christ's likeness, and only after they had a heart to help the gospel ministry go forward, would they ask for how to do this, and then Paul would write how to do that. And that's where we get texts like uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, 10, and 11. That's where we get texts like, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 17, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. All these texts that talk about how to care for someone who's in full-time vocational ministry, that only came after they asked how they could begin. Because it's the heart 
of God's people in Christ to always support gospel ministry going forward. And they will ask if they're walking with God. It never has to be asked for. So here comes this group of people, and I think it's interesting here, Paul highlights the Macedonian believers again, like he did in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 4. What do we know about these people? Well, Macedonia is north, Achaia is south. Corinth is pretty much the capital city of Achaia in the south. Paul is writing to this church. Well, here comes from the north again, these people who are poor, they're persecuted, they're impoverished. But they have a concern not only for the church of Jerusalem, but they also have a concern for the personal ministry of Paul. If you want to cross-reference here uh, next to this verse, verse 9, I think you could cross-reference Philippians chapter 4, verses 13, 14, 15, and so forth, because there Paul references to Philippi, who was among the Macedonian churches, Gratefulness for their gift that they had saved up, history tells us, some seven years to send to him in his need. And Paul says there, I know how to live with everything and I know how to live with nothing. When he's living with nothing, he's, he's a leather worker. He's making up for that lost income, right? And when he has everything, he can lay the leather aside and he can just do gospel ministry. And he's saying, I'm thanking you for partnering with me for the advancement of the gospel there in chapter 4. But really, you can go back and read all this history in Acts chapter 18. That was Paul's custom. He never went into cities asking for money when he was first there. He never asked for money. But when they asked, he told them how they could best utilize the Lord's resources for the advancement of the gospel. Paul just preached Christ and worked and made his living. He speaks here of what humble ministry is. It's exclusively weak. It's exclusively weak because it's Christ-centered, word-focused, sacrificial. It's humbling ministry. It's modest ministry. And Paul was considered a charlatan because of the humble way, the modest way in which he approached ministry. Because if you didn't charge up front, you were considered a fake. You were considered to be uncertain of yourself. Certainly not professional. Certainly not educated. You were a quack among those who could charge and be remunerated for their speech and their rhetoric and their teaching. As a matter of fact, he goes on here to highlight two other virtues as we close this morning that he was criticized for not holding to or having. Verse 10. He says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. You think think this is just an issue I'm having in Corinth. No, in the regions of Achaia. I'm never going to stop bragging about my weakness 
because I'm preaching exclusively the truth of Christ. So the false ones of the day would criticize him for being fake when he was actually exuding humility. He would criti- they would be criticized next for telling him, he would be criticized next by them telling him that he really didn't love his listener. Because he had no truth to give them of himself. And he says, no, the truth is Christ. As a matter of fact, if you really want to know how powerful he is, just go back and review. And by the way, all you false ones, go back and reinvestigate the life of all these Corinthians who accepted Christ as their Savior. They walked away for a little bit, but they're back now. Why don't you check out the way they're living right now? And that's a testimony to Christ. To him be all the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. So yeah, I preach truth. It's not going to be the truth of man. It's going to be exclusively the truth of God because I really have nothing else to offer. Even if it bends the mind, even if it blows the mind, even if it tickles the ear, if it's intellectually challenging and it doesn't change the way you live, then it's of man and not of God. Be careful. Paul says, no, I am humble. No, I do speak truth. Right? I do. And what does he say here in verse 10? Verse 11. Why? Why? Because I do not love you? Why am I going to continue to preach the truth of Christ and I'm going to keep boasting throughout this whole region that the sufficiency of my message is in Him and not of me? Why am I going to do this? And he says, you know what? It's because I do love you. All these people are out here saying, I don't love you because I won't charge for my message and what I get for my fee defines how much I love you. No, no, no. I do love you. And he says, God knows it. As a matter of fact, in the original language, it just says, God knows. I walked into Corinth, I preached Christ, your lives changed. I walked away from Corinth, you continued to live, you got sidetracked, you're back, you're now living your changed lives. I'm addressing you again as changed people in Christ. And I'm doing so because I do love you in Christ. What he's saying here is, I love you the same way Christ loves you. If you've had a bad couple years, well, technically a year, from what we found out earlier in chapters 8 and 9, if you've had a bad year, I never stopped loving you because you had a bad year. Do I love you? Yes, God knows. I've never stopped loving you because I love you the same way Jesus does. That's powerful, folks. People who are false or people who are giving way to falsehood. Hang on with me here. All they can do is see the vice in a believer's life at the expense of the preponderance of all that Christ is doing in their life. All of us, me, you, all of us would love the perspective of Paul, right? When dealing with others or when people are dealing with us. Wouldn't you? Don't, wouldn't you love everybody to love each other the same way you're loved by God? No? 
I mean, maybe? Has anyone sinned this morning? Maybe, maybe not. I have. I'm super glad God's okay with me in Christ so I can confess that, get back in fellowship and go and know that I'm loved not based on my failures or my success. I'm loved because Jesus is in me. Jesus loves me. I'm loved because I'm a child of God, not a member of Grace Church. That keeps all the glory going to our Creator and our Savior and our indwelling Illuminator and completely off of us. Paul says, no, the noise of the distractors, both philosophical and religious, they're going to continue to pull and their crosshairs are going to be on the deliverer of the message of God's word. And just always remember, everybody, as they preach, right? the false ones are going to say, their message is of no value, they're not charging you, and they really don't love you because they're not charging you. And Paul's saying, Not so. Just not so. So if we're going to be protectors of the church, we've got to take that modest approach. We're not going to be a burden to the church. None of us want to be a burden to the church. We're not a burden if we take this modest, humble approach, if we continue to cling to the exclusive truth of who Christ is in us and among us, We hold on to that love. We love each other the same way God in Christ loves us. Okay? That's consistency. That's not like looking at a spiritual heart monitor. That's just consistent progress. Because Jesus never changes. His word never changes. This transcends the love of a parent for a child. None of you in this room would cut your own child off if they made a mistake, regardless of the degree of the mistake. Right? Who does that? Unbelief. How quickly do you want that relationship restored with your child? Why? They're your child. Why wouldn't you want that? They're your child. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we're children. We're children. So I spend a little extra time here as we close this morning emphasizing this. Because it's like I said a few weeks ago. All of us have this fallen propensity to be a little judgy. And that can really affect the way we grow each other in Christ-likeness. But if we love each other this way, 
then our relationships don't judge and grow farther apart. They're focused on Christ and they grow closer together. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. By and large, I think everyone's doing a great job with that here. You're not Corinth in that regard. But all I'm saying is, focused on Christ and each other. Assume faith. Assume growth. And then let's talk about how we're going to live life together. Christ brings us together. Unbelief tears us apart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of your word. I thank you, Lord, for your love for us in Christ. I thank you for the flock's love for me. I trust my love for them, the pastor's love for them. Pray, Lord, as this old world grows noisier and noisier. I pray that we would be undistracted by the noise of that which, if we are tempted, and I don't believe anyone here is that I know of, but if we are tempted to pull away rather than go grow closer to one another, I pray that the Spirit of God would address that matter in our hearts, that we would pursue Christ in each other and learn to enjoy what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives to mold us into His likeness as we truly understand what it means to protect the flock as the foolish and the weak of this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.